Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Progressive American. The following audio is taken from my interview with leftist podcaster and Canadian activist Jody, who is more commonly known through his show Imperial News. You can find his content on Spotify and other podcast apps along with his co-host Vienno. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. Jody from the Imperial News podcast and live stream. Uh, Jody, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I, uh, I'm Jody. Do you, I can see on the Twitch, uh, my video is not showing up. Did you want me to? You can add it as you, if you'd like. How do I add video? Turn on camera? Yeah, I think you Does can turn on camera. Work? There we go. Am I appearing now? Yeah, Was I are. not appearing this whole time? Yeah, you, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your introduction, Jody. <laughs> Yes, I'm, I'm uh, Jody. I do a podcast called Imperial News, and the point of that podcast is we cover Rebel News, which is a Canadian far-right uh, fascist media network, I guess you could say. Uh, most people, I think, don't know who Ezra Levant is uh, or Rebel News, they might know some of their peripheral figures, though, like Lauren Southern, Faith Goldie, and Gavin McGinnis. Gavin McGinnis is notable because everyone knows uh, that he eventually created this weird uh, group called the Proud Boys that are now designated a terrorist organization in Canada. So that's fun. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we Ezra releases a weekly podcast on Rebel News. And so what I do for the podcast is I listen to Rebel for the entire week, and then I present what I learned to my co-host, Vienno, and they don't listen to Rebel, and so I basically expose all the crap to them, and we joke and laugh and cry along the way. Yeah. And, and that's I, kind of what the podcast is. Yeah, and I was kind of always curious about this because there's a lot of far-right news outlets out there like the daily wire that really consistently promotes some of the same stuff that rebel news does and i was curious what exactly about rebel news uh made you think that that would be like a good target for your podcast well for one i'm canadian that <laughs> <laughs> well that's the big one that, that played a lot into it but part of it was I mean, I was listening to Knowledge Fight a lot. So Knowledge Fight is a podcast that covered, does like what we do, but for Alex Jones. And so they were like the immediate inspiration for doing the podcast. But then I, I was like, well, who, what kind of right-wing figures could I address? And part of it is I feel like Rebel, it's weird because even though they do cover a lot of Canadian news and our podcast is say more Canadian focused than say a lot of other podcasts. It still is pretty international. And part of that is because of the reach that rebel news has had. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate that. So even figures like Laura Loomer, uh, Jack Posobiec, uh, Claire Lehman, who's the editor of, uh, Quillette, uh, Tommy Robinson in the UK, <laughs> uh, Katie Hopkins in the UK. These are all people who've been employed or have worked for Rebel News in some capacity at some point. And it's just amazing to me how they've had their sort of like effect around the world and have been associated with all these right wing 
shitheads, <laughs> you know? And so in part of that, it, it, it just made sense to, to cover them. And in part because they've had, sadly, they've had, a, a, had an effect in Canada. Uh, you know, we had, we have hate crime legislation in Canada. I know America, you're a bit different with your uh, free speech and First Amendment and whatnot. <laughs> but we allow some regulations against hate speech in Canada. And Ezra, along with another Canadian, Mark Stein, who uh, is, I think, a Fox News host now, but they uh, they helped overturn Section 13 of the Human Rights Act in Canada, which basically made it so that it would be harder to challenge hate speech in the uh, what we call the Human Rights Tribunals, which is a quasi-judicial uh, legal system within Canada. And so it's things like that where he's had a, a direct effect on our government and for the worse. And I, I think that's a reason why to highlight him and to focus on him and the narratives that get spun out of Rebel News. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're basically saying that Rebel News is not only unique to Canada, but it is much like the Murdoch press in that it is global in its influence and it is able to really change the structure of society in very dangerous ways that you would want to see stopped. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and and and, and to, to add to that, it's kind of interesting to see how Recently, there have been more and more shows out there kind of addressing this kind of far-right commentary where they're attempting to either mock or debunk or just generally refute their talking points. But at the same time, there's also talk of what constitutes uh, proper attention to these things. Like, how do you distinguish between just examining what they're saying and also potentially giving them more reach through your content? Well, I mean, the reach thing doesn't really matter for us in the sense that uh, they are obviously way bigger than we are. <laughs> so I, I don't have to worry about that on that front. I think part of it is, even if we were bigger than they were in some capacity, I think there's still an insight to how pervasive they could be and how the shit that they spew can like radicalize other people. And I think it's worthwhile just having a lens or like focus on them at least somewhat to make sure that, you know, we as concerned citizens don't let our guard down, you know, yeah. uh, to keep a keep an eye on it. But I will say that I, I do have sort of like moments of self-reflection and concern always about like there's like a weird like you're getting into like dark territory of doing this stuff and it feels it feels icky sometimes doing the work and so one way to like compensate for that that i found to at least cleanse the palate when we're done is each week we tend to pick a cause to highlight or a way to fight back which isn't just our us being reactionary to their content because it's one thing just going look they're wrong and going through the things I think it's good to I, – I think there is, like, a benefit to deconstructing their propaganda because, like, sometimes it, it pervades wide society, like all the anti-vaccine crap or anti-mask stuff that's been happening lately. It's good to, like, break that down and point out, like, no, masks are effective. Vaccines are effective. They're safe, right? Uh, and so it's good to combat that stuff. But then, it, like, it can feel sometimes is like you're just reacting to this 
beast, you know? <laughs> mm. And so it, we do try to make an effort to be like, here's how you can fight back in your community. And like, you should organize and you should get involved uh, with changing things and, and fighting in the, what we consider, I guess, morally correct struggles, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and I've had that kind of challenge myself. Like, one of the things that I've always struggled with is anything Tucker Carlson ever says. Uh, A lot of times I I have dedicated multiple articles to responding or debunking him. I just did this on my last podcast. And one of the things that always frustrates me is how much of this is me putting in the effort to actually fight back and how much of it is me reacting to what this other person said. Are we really determining our path when all we do is react to the opposition. But I I wanted to get into your activism as well, because I know you're uh, organized with, uh, was it the London, um, the you operated, what was it? I had it right here for a moment. Uh, You you work with a local organization that, uh, hold on, let me pull it up real quick. I, I don't know that I'm like like strictly affiliated with any local organization. But well, in like, your bio, uh, it mentions your executive at large at the London and District oh, Labor oh, Council. Oh, so this, yeah, I, I should change. I never used my personal Twitter. I used to be uh, a member of the Labor Council back when I uh, I had a union job. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do not have a union job anymore, and so I do not have a position at Labor Council. I mean, I still uh, work with those activists, and it's uh, tons of fun. And whenever there's a picket, I show up and uh, help out and stuff like this. But, I mean, that's part of getting involved. I mean, like, I think a lot of my activism did grow out of union work. So I I was doing a Ph.D., Mm. and in my Ph.D. program, uh, you were given a teaching assistant role at the university. And with that, I was a part of the teaching assistants union and, you know, got involved and became the communications chair and like did stuff like this uh and uh yeah i mean like it's it's those are struggles it's important to get involved with i think a lot of people uh, even like just work settings but even like in the academic set like setting they get like bogged down with all the work and the stress and the competition and the needing to produce papers and work and uh finish your projects that People leave things uh, on the wayside, like the fact that the university is often exploiting your labor to get this crap done. And so, you know, there's a benefit to organizing with your fellow workers and fellow students and actually changing the structure of the university to make it more equitable and uh, a, a more enjoyable experience, you know, <laughs> being paid for the actual work you do. Because a, a lot of teaching assistants don't they do a lot of work that they don't get paid for and the universities purposefully try to prevent you from getting overtime pay and other stuff like this and it's uh disgusting yeah and i and i've in my experience a lot of these local organizations are key not just in like union relations but in being able to advocate on your own terms like one of the things that i always liked working with was Indivisible Dubuque when I was still out in uh, Dubuque, Iowa for my college degree. But I also think that it's interesting when you see organizations overlap because prior to the stream you mentioned that you follow a lot of anti-fascists and sometimes work with them. And I'm curious how your podcast and streaming work 
transfers over into how you deal with in-person activism. Does it have any effect? Does it influence the way you think about it or just in general? Yeah, I mean, I I actually think it's like the reverse. I feel like the in-person activism informs how I can do the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And, and And I say that because like, I don't know. I think that a lot of people assume that like a lot of these somewhat fringe figures, like, let's be honest, I don't want to like blow up Ezra's ego too much. But like, I don't think Rebel News are that big in the grand scheme of things, right? They appeal to a very tiny aggrieved minority that I wish was quieter and would go away. But (laughs) and it's, you know, a festering thing that we need to, to put a spotlight on. But I think a lot of people think that it, it, they don't have real-world implications or we could just ignore it, right? But then we have done local activism where in town we had a group called Pegida, which are called People Against the Islam- Islamization of the West. They're a, a German group. I don't know why uh, they're active in Canada, but it's just a weird, <laughs> a weird thing. And they used to go out in front of our city hall and set up speakers and then just yell just anti-Muslim bigotry at people who were walking by City Hall. So with the work of a lot of like local community actors and stuff like this, we would show up with pots and pans and just bang the pots and pans really loudly and so that no one could hear the shit that they were saying. (laughs) Well played. And uh, Yeah, and so it's just, it's stuff like that where, I don't know, like... we have a, a, a large Muslim community in London, uh, and we recently had a, an incident where a Muslim family was murdered by a, a bigot that targeted them because they were uh, Muslim. And all of these things are connected because, again, so Rebel News, Rebel News, uh, they're one of the biggest Islamophobic platforms in this country. And Ezra hired for a period of time and constantly platforms this guy named Andrew Lawton who is local to us in London, Ontario, who also is like a talk radio person, just like Ezra, but promotes Islamophobia as well. And so like these things are all connected, you know? And I think I think we need to realize that as, uh, I mean, like it, it reflects both ways. I think you can learn about that as an activist, that these things are connected, that the reason why these assholes are in front of City Hall is because they're being inspired and influenced by people who are promoting this shit on talk, either talk radio, which Andrew Lawton was involved in, or in the podcast scene, which Ezra is involved in, you know, or YouTube, which is a big uh, radicalization point. And so, well, and, I, and yeah. I, and and it's it's horrible to see the consequences of things like you mentioned, like that family that was murdered. Like there's – it's sad because – hearing about this from an American perspective, it's like, I hear the exact same thing here, because the conservative media sphere here is also very interconnected. You will hear, like, Ben Shapiro will be on the Daily Wire, or or, or Fox News, or, or, or any other conservative platform, and then he'll also be on PragerU, spewing out some of that same stuff. Like, I remember he had made this claim that um, their moderate Muslims were in the minority or something, and, and the way he framed it was very, very weird. And we had an incident a while back, uh, back when Donald Trump was elected president, where a Muslim woman uh, actually had her hijab removed forcefully by uh, somebody in the downtown area. Um, 
I won't say where because I'm not about to dox myself, but that kind of content, I think, really does uh, poison the well to such an extent that it, it almost seems as though that the platforms that maintain them are complicit in those in the consequences of that platforming. Uh, do you think that some of your content and the way you handle this helps bring awareness to it in a way that could possibly see some of this content removed? I know uh, Rebel was recently kicked off of PayPal. Uh, you had a very interesting video about that, so I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I don't know if we can have a direct hand in uh, them being left off these platforms, but uh, there's always hope, you know? <laughs> Keep the hope alive. Uh, I mean, it's it's funny because, like, we always get we always get uh, commenters who are just like, uh, what, you're, you want to censor all these people? Or like, what, like, you're actually for a cancel culture? And it's like, yeah, I kind of am in favor of it because like, I've seen the results uh, in real time of their propaganda, you know? Like, I don't mind them losing these sort of like privileges. And I, I will call them privileges because I don't think they're right. I mean, like, I don't think PayPal I don't think PayPal should be forced to, for example, facilitate Nazis being paid, right? And maybe uh, Rebel News is not Nazis, right? But their worldviews converge in a lot of ways. And if PayPal wants to draw the line to exclude them from their platform, then all the power to PayPal, like, go for it, you know? <laughs> I, I get frustrated because they recently... Uh, were completely demonetized off YouTube. So they can't make any money off of YouTube and they've moved to a platform called Rumble, which is a, oh a frightening platform. But uh, the, the thing with uh, the YouTube demonetization is the things that they listed that were the reasons why they demonetized them was because of the COVID denial stuff. Yeah, But it took them over a year and a half of this pandemic before they finally moved on that. Since the beginning of the pandemic almost, since since at least April 2020, they've had a like bumper in front of every single one of their videos that talks about COVID that goes, warning, censorship, warning, censorship, and says, this video may contradict the medical consensus of COVID-19. Oh, so like they had it like blaring in YouTube's face the entire time. And yet it took the YouTube a year and a half to finally demonetize them during a pandemic where like people were dying because of the misinformation they're spreading. It's just like, I, I wish we had more of an effect, you know? <laughs> I wish I could say we contributed to them being demonetized. At the same time, I just feel like YouTube is too big for its own good in a large respect, you know? Yeah, and that's kind of like, uh, and by the way, your camera kicked out but uh, I can still hear you. Um, but in a certain way, I think, like, I, and I've mentioned this before on my own show, uh, if people were really serious about the dangers of corporate control or whatever they're going to make the case for, the proper response is not to remove TOS and the enforcement of the uh, said TOS, but would be something along the lines of antitrust law to the point where people could go to multiple different platforms and choose which ones are the best TOS services rather than this collection of a few companies. But even then they don't want to do that because that kind of flies in the face of their narrative about big and small government, uh, which is a big thing in America, unfortunately. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what I think is the right solution here. I think the antitrust argument is like interesting, but to me, it's like, and I don't know. I don't know if this is the difference between us being Canadian and Americans don't like like this idea. But I'm like, I don't know. I also just think that Nazis or fascists or these types of adjacent people should be denied platforms in society, even in the public square. Like, I'm sorry, but like, if you're going to promote uh, bigotry and harassment against groups of people, like, uh, frankly, I'm like, I don't, I don't, I prefer a society that would prevent you from speaking, <laughs> you know. And it's also similar to that video uh, Sean made about this kind of thing, where he basically says, like, if you allow a platform where a bunch of people are just, like, in hoods screaming constant slurs and whatnot, minorities are not going to feel comfortable being on that platform, and they will leave to the point where you're losing an even larger uh, base of people who speak, who have their perspectives on things. So in a way, some of these restrictions are actually more in line with free speech because it yeah. actually prevents people from being coerced off of platforms that they otherwise would feel safe on. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the more free speech argument. And, and I see that. But like, I guess my argument is more of a harm uh, position, which is like these people, I mean, the people spreading COVID denialism. How many deaths? Can we, I mean, it, it's hard to quantify something like that, but there's got to be thousands of people out there that took these people seriously. You, you're seeing stories nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. Where like people are in the hospital with COVID begging their doctor for the vaccine and the doctor's telling them like, you should, like, it's too late now. You should have gotten your vaccine earlier. Like the vaccine won't help you now while you're sitting in the hospital. And these people are dying because of the misinformation that all these people were spreading, you know? Oh my god, yeah. And, and so it's like, there, there really is a harm to this. Yeah, yeah and, and the main thing is, like, my main concern right now is people like Tucker Carlson, David Menzies, uh, I know you guys have a bit of a, a tiff with David Menzies, uh, uh, and, and others who promote this kind of thing, and f from an American perspective, one of the main concerns is if they do particularly a certain percentage of leftists as well, uh, if we allow them to be censored or whatever, uh, that it will in turn mean that our own ability to speak on issues that might be more controversial, say, relative to the U.S. government, might also be banned and whatnot. And to me, at least, I don't... My main concern right now is making sure that people aren't dying like you're talking about. Like, they're not putting signals in their videos to say, hey, this journalist isn't covering... You good? Sorry, racers traveling by my house. <laughs> um, but, like, people aren't dying. They're not putting signals and things in these videos about, hey, this person's causing me trouble. Go take care of it or something like that. Like, the stochastic terror terrorist element or just the misinformation that you mentioned. And Rico and I were talking about it, yes, uh, not yesterday, last stream, and he mentioned how there's an alternative, which is civil suits for slander when they start talking about specific people in a way that kind of forces them to kind of go down. Would you say that that would work well in a Canadian system where you start to sue people like David Menzies when they talk about specific figures and lie about them and things like that? Part of, 
that gets into a whole complication with the legal structure in the system. I mean, like right now, Rebel News is just constantly suing people because that's what they do. Like they sue people for uh, frivolous reasons all the time. That's their their shtick, right? Which is why I mean, there's there's some left wing group podcasting groups that, as much as they love us and love the content that we produce, uh, don't want us on their networks because they're afraid Ezra's going to sue them, <laughs> and they don't have the financial resources. And like frankly, I don't have the financial resources either, but. Uh, uh, hopefully, I'll, I'll crowdsource if he ever decides to come for me or, or whatnot. But uh, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think lawsuits are the appropriate angle. Like, most people can't afford to sue. Like, it would, would it be a system where somehow we free the system up completely that, like, filing a lawsuit doesn't cost anything, but lawyers are expensive. And then, and then you overburden the courts. So then you need, like, uh, I guess the government to spend money on, like, uh, judges and stuff to... to uh, deal with all these cases because you know people will be throwing lawsuits like this around like i don't know i think i just think the the easier answer is to uh regulate regulate the the social media companies we have a bill right now a bill c36 that's being proposed i don't necessarily think that it's it's perfect but i think it's it's a trend in the right direction even though it's being proposed by the liberal government that i know like most lefties hate and uh, i don't like them myself uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, in, in liberal government in Canada context, I know uh, liberal has, I guess, an American term, but I, I would consider our liberal party is like the right wing of your Democratic Party. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, they're passing this bill, and uh, I don't know if it's going to pass or not, but I, I think that's the one of the better ways of going about it, to just regulate them and prevent them from, from being able to say it. I had something else to say to that, but I forget. But you can ask another question. <laughs> I, I've I've done that before, and on a on a bit of a lighter note, I meant to ask you earlier. What? Why did you choose the name Imperial News? Because it's a pun on Rebel News. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so the funny thing with that is, they used to be called Rebel Media. Yeah. They changed that. their name from Rebel Media to Rebel News because they wanted to seem more appealing during the 2019 federal election in Canada. Uh, and so they, they even filed a lawsuit to try to get in, into the, uh, so I guess after we did our debates, like leadership debates, like you do in the United States, mm -hmm. they do like a polo, like a scrum with the press and the press will ask them questions after the debate, right? And so Rebel News fought a lawsuit to be able to ask the leaders questions during that uh, thing. And won and succeeded and got to ask them questions, which ended up with some funny material where the uh, most of the leaders just refused to take questions from Rebel News. <laughs> uh, but it, it was the fact that, so they changed their name to Rebel News to appear like, we're, we're not just Rebel Media, we're an official news organization, right? So when I, when I initially came up with the name, it was a double pun so it was a pun on both rebel and on media so for, so instead of media i chose news but then they changed their name to rebel news and now it just sounds like a, a single pun but the other part of it was it, the reason why i chose imperial as the pun uh is because i thought it was like a, a fun like star wars reference <laughs> you know if they're the rebels okay we'll be uh the the evil empire or whatever <laughs> and uh a lot of the interstitial music on the podcast, like, I don't think most people pick up on this, but I, I told my friend to make it vaguely similar to, like, Star Wars songs. So if you, so it's enough that I don't think Disney's copyright will come after us, but you can pick on, like, the subtleties that they're, they're vaguely reminiscent of, like, Star Wars songs. 
Well, it's kind of funny because every time I try to look you up on YouTube, I also get a bunch of Star Wars channels on the side, so apparently <laughs> it worked. Um, well, the, fu- well, the funny thing, too, is when I came up with the name, I you know, I did the thing that most people do, which is, like, search to see if other people took it. And I was like, the only thing I was finding was, like, Star Wars blogs and stuff like this. And I was like, okay, we should be fine. But it, it is funny. That we're probably going to get people expecting some, like, Star Wars things stumbling upon our stuff. <laughs> Well, I actually, uh, I actually, oh, sorry. I actually had a similar incident. So I looked up, I, when I started the progressive American YouTube channel, I started it while I was in quarantine, uh, in an attempt to kind of counteract my roommate's, uh, channel. I wanted to see if I could, uh, outdo him in subscriber count. (laughs) Uh, and I did. Uh, but what I later learned was there was another channel by the same name and I panicked thinking, Oh crap, did they did I just take somebody's channel name? Well it turns out I made the channel a month before they did. So they took my name. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. So it's always a little bit of a battle. Um but in more serious uh discussions, I know recently there have been uh some issues with how the right has handled the more tragic news surrounding the residential schools. Um because I know you've mentioned in the past how the right tends to spew bigotry. Uh, and for those who in, uh, who are likely American in my audience who don't know, in uh, in Canada there's these things called residential schools where uh, indigenous people, specifically children, were taken from their parents uh, against their will, and they were basically tried to reform them, so to speak. And recently they have begun found, finding uh, mass graves with people like in the hundreds. Uh, I believe Saskatch- Saskatchewan it was that had about 750. Uh, bodies that were found according to Yahoo News so uh, I just wanted to because I know you've interviewed uh, some people on this in the past in your perspective do you think that there needs to be something done in regards to how the right is kind of handling this sort of commentary because this is this is something that was horribly tragic and there's allegations of genocide surrounding it as well yeah I mean we're we're pretty open about this on our show that it's not it's not just that that this was a genocide in the past it's an ongoing genocide it's happening right now and i don't think a lot of people like appreciate that like you talk about residential schools the last residential school closed in 1996 okay 1996 i was 10 years old when that school closed uh this is something that exists in our current generation we had there was the the 60s scoop which I don't think like those that that process didn't end until the 1980s, where they were taking children from indigenous parents because the government deemed them unqualified to raise their children based on prejudice and other racial beliefs. So like this is this is not just. And then we have the removal of of indigenous land to uh, build exploitative resources, uh, mining tech like mining and pipelines and all this stuff, where we then pollute their water and destroy their land and take their land from them. So like, this is an ongoing genocide, you know? I think I think that bothers a lot of people when you say it. <clears throat> and this like is where the right wing gets in. I, I mean, you mentioned like whether or not we can like fully, like what we can do to like combat what they're doing. But I, I don't even know if it's more combating it because like their, their narrative is just like, it's the same with the right wing in, in your country, which is that like, America is great. Like in our contents, it's Canada is great. So if you if you say that Canada is committing an ongoing genocide, 
then that means that Canada is weak or bad or like dirty. And and then it weakens us to like, you know, China's denying their genocide. So if we deny, we should be denying our genocide because if we admit we're doing a genocide that somehow like they get into like weird dynamics like that, where it's like, I don't know, maybe we should address the fact that we have an ongoing genocide in this country. And maybe we should uh, deal with the fact that we we took children away from their parents uh and tried like you you called it reform like it was literally spelled out to take the indian out of the child yeah it was designed to basically culturally destroy indigenous people that was the whole purpose of it uh and it's disgusting you know it, it i guess the thing is it's like less the podcast but like other than just educating people on what's going on here, it, it was it was inspiring to me and kind of amazing because I've I've participated in a lot of indigenous activism within our city, having to do with, for, for example, uh, when Black Lives Matter was happening, and we had huge turnouts for that too. But like in our country, it's it's not just black people who are targeted by the police, but indigenous populations as well. So locally, we had this woman, Deborah Christian who was picked up by the police and she was on drugs in some capacity and started having a medical crisis in the back of the police vehicle. And rather than call for help, the police officer just left her in the back of his vehicle to die. And she died. And rather than take this person off so then then so he went to court and thankfully unlike in most cases he was found guilty for murdering deborah but then we still had to pay his salary in town for an extra like 12 months before sentencing so it's like the the structures uh, clearly are in place to promote uh, the police that abuse and harm these people were like where was where was where was the community for deborah in the first place mm. you know and so it's like i guess the the positives that come out of it is like you you have to deal with that shit and the oppression that exists uh, ongoing today with the fact that this canada day we had locally over ten thousand people show up with orange shirts in solidarity with the indigenous community and went for a walk with the chant to cancel Canada Day. To say that, like, you know, it's, we shouldn't be celebrating a country that refuses to deal with and acknowledge this ongoing genocide. And like 2% of the city showed up to that, which is like amazing. Like I, it's, it's, it's so hard to like put into context of how inspiring this is, where it's like, I think people are finally realizing like I used to show up to protests locally where, you know, more people should have come out for Deborah. You know what I mean? But like that was, I mean, it was at the beginning, of, uh, uh, right before the pandemic. But like, you know, I, I just feel like a lot of these stories are finally becoming more mainstream and it's drawing people out into the streets because it's so obviously an injustice, you know? And so like, maybe it's like, it's not necessarily about addressing the right, but even just educating people about why this is something that's important 
or why they should have known about this in the first place. Because just like, uh, I guess, your education system in like not being uh, as robust to teach you about your history and your issues with slavery, like our country does fuck all about teaching people about what happened to the indigenous people in this country. You know, we get like nice, nice images of like the pilgrims shaking hands with like the the Indians when they showed up. You know, that that was like my education growing up. Uh, it's 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 kind of disturbing how many like I know you mentioned earlier that there's differences in perspectives uh, in Canada and the United States. But it's kind of disturbing sometimes when you see this this kind of thing. And there's so many parallels because I I. I vividly remember as a kid getting a very similar education about the relationship between the pilgrims and indigenous peoples and how there was very little mention of how Washington and Jefferson endorsed this same kind of system of residential schools and reforming the Indian or taking the Indian out of the child kind of thing to civilize the savage as they would have said back then. And what's frustrating is there's well there's a lot to unpack in what you were talking about the first is basically there seems to be this massive effort whether it's in the united states or in canada to maintain this orthodoxy that america's great or canada's great and if you say anything otherwise you're an idiot or you're a problem and and any like figures that they try to prop up, like I'm, I'm sure you've heard this from Americans before, but a lot of times they'll say, oh, how dare you say this? People like Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass love their country, but ignore all the criticisms they made. And I, I just, it's frustrating to me because I'm also a historian. <laughs> And it it feel it it's so loathsome because there's very little actual discussion about historical methodology to understand what it was like for these people to endure this kind of brutality and still endure as you mentioned earlier. Um, but on a second note, I know you mentioned that some people are opposed to the phrase genocide, and I know that generally speaking, genocide usually requires intentionality, but. It seems to me, and you, I'll let you uh, respond to this in a second, uh, that after a pattern of neglect being shown so many times, particularly with how they responded to the tuber tuberculosis outbreaks in these uh, residential schools, that you can kind of see evidence of intentionality just by virtue of repeated neglect. I mean, not. I mean, it's not just that. I mean, it's even it, you look at what happened with uh, the Wet'suwet'en in our country where they they have land claims that a government has constantly ignored or, or land back lane. I think I know a little bit more about land back lane because of how local it is, but to fill, fill you in on what that is, there is a town that's sort of like east or sort of, sorry, uh, west of Toronto uh, called Caledonia. And the First Nations have a tract of land next to the Grand River which it was supposed to be large and expand most of the Grand River, okay? Most of that has been taken from them. That was given to them by our government. And still, the government, uh, various uh, aspects of the government, both municipal, provincial, and federal, choose to ignore it whenever they feel like ignoring it uh, to this day. And so recently you had a land developer just choose that, like the city council of Caledonia just decided that they were going to take land from the, the, the First Nations there. And like the, the Haudenosaunee people, like why, why, like it's their land. 
through treaties and agreements. And then they're just like, no, we're going to turn it into a development. So then what did uh, they do? They went and dug up the roads and blocked, blockaded and like fought back. And the response by, uh, you know, the governments are just like, why are they doing this? Like, this is like, how dare they like block roads and stuff like this? And it's like, you you made promises to these people and continue to this day to take their land from them. Like, it's, it's not, it's, it's one of these things where it's like, I don't know. it's it's the structures the i mean like we refer to it as systemic racism i mean like that's what it is and like you could call it like you can quibble over the word genocide or intentionality like we're still doing it you just go i want the land and you just fucking take it (laughs) you know because you have the might of the military the police right like people who are protesting it were shot with rubber bullets and stuff like this it's not like the the indigenous people have a militia or something who can defend themselves from the federal government or provincial government that's going to come in and take their land from them luckily like because of their resistance and like the struggles and the ongoing fight the developer finally decided not to build there and so they they won this time you know but like this is a like when you speak to intentionality like this is a constant ongoing thing and so i mentioned the wetsuetan it was a similar thing there where uh they wanted to build a pipeline through their territory and just decided they were going to fucking do it you know uh yeah it's it's just it, the residential schools i mean like there's hard it's hard for you to say that there was no intentionality there when they yeah <laughs> the explicit purpose of it was to remove the indian from the child you know? yeah exactly and 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 it's 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 the same problem here they had the keystone pipeline out here uh, a couple a while back and it was a constant yeah. legal fight and again it's these parallels that keep popping up that it, it it's startling um in part because there was the same level of police brutality. Uh, people were trying to protect burial mounds. Like people's grandparents lived there. Their their fathers, their their brothers were buried there, and they had treaties that, mind you, under the Constitution of the United States, are legal. They're law of the land, and yet somehow, it the government justified its uh, its a position for a while that these uh, the usage of this land against the will of the people who lived there was somehow. Uh, permissible, and it seems to me that so long as the uh, legal system continues to maintain its er- the erasure of these people, it will um, it will end up I mean, just seeing. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say like th- that gets. This is like a, I think before we started streaming, I was talking about the complicatedness of it, and this is where it gets fishy because like I don't like these appeals to the legal systems necessarily, and, and part of that is because it's it's especially if you take into account like what happened in Wet'suwet'en and land back, which was that you had, you had these, some treaties in place, but we have in Canada, what was called the Indian act. And that was imposed on the indigenous populations of this country. And by imposed, it was designed because the Canadian government was like, we can't, we can't deal with indigenous people. We need them to be more like us. So they imposed a kind of quasi uh, d- democratic structure on them that like represented the way that Canada itself was run to a certain degree. But what happened is you have, that again puts pressures on these communities where you now have these communities uh, where there's disconnect between what they call the band council and the hereditary chiefs. 
And the right wing gets to play off of this because they can go, well, look, the ban cancels, which again are the result of this imposed structure on indigenous reserves by the Canadian government. It was imposed on them. Some of the ban cancels who are, are desperate, their people are in need because they're, they've been located on land, which is uh, not as good as other land and like the surrounding rivers and stuff have been polluted through mining and other resource extraction and so they're desperate and then this pipeline company comes and goes okay give us the land and we'll like fund you like some sort of facility or something like this to help you out okay so a lot of the band chiefs will go okay sure and they'll they'll sign over something legally speaking to these companies but then you have the hereditary chief system, which is like, aside from that, where the people were like, we're not going to obey this Indian Act imposition that you placed on us. And this is how we structured our government long before Canada decided to show up and impose their set settler colonial system on top of us. And so then it's like, well, what, what do we respect mm. as a government? And the government decides that we're going to go with the imposing system because, hey, that gives us a lot of benefits. It allows us to keep extracting these resources. It allows us to keep taking their land where it's like, no, there's a reason why there are these conflicts because there's a lot of indigenous pushback to this resource extraction and the taking of their land. Uh, and so it's like, to me, trying to make this a legal discussion is always fraught because like the legal uh, the, you get that and you get the judicial discretion so like even when these things do go to courts the courts often side with the government even though even though there are existing treaties and other stuff right because they'll appeal to the fact that oh the ban canceled in this or or look uh this treat do we have all the evidence of the treaty and they'll be all wishy-washy about it so it's like to me it's like i don't know screw the legal system these people are <laughs> being targeted you know what i mean like it, it almost is not it's more a moral question than a legal question yeah and, and i'm glad you brought that up because like a lot of times in the uh, discussion in the united states it's talking about consistently the criminality of it like the illegality of it and how america is violating its own laws which it d has done repeatedly the trail of tears was 100 percent illegal so anybody who defends andrew jackson just uh Remember, he broke the law to do this, too. Um, but I do think, like, you have a point about how, at a certain point, when the legal system itself views a certain way of life as invalid, in the case of the indigenous peoples, it's the hereditary chiefs, it necessarily removes the self-governing sovereignty of the people it claims to protect. And I really think that if there's ever going to be a discussion about protecting indigenous land or just indigenous lives in general, there has to be a discussion about what we consider proper sovereignty, if there is such a thing. And I, so long as that isn't uh, discussed, it will never be changed. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I don't even know, like, I don't, I don't have all the answers. And I will say, like, with some of this, too, like, I might have some of this wrong just because... I'm not a scholar in this and I would seek out indigenous voices that have a better understanding. Like most of what I've learned about this has come from uh, indigenous authors and activists and writers who have spoken on this. But uh, I don't, I don't even know if the issue is like sovereignty necessarily, or more of just like autonomy of like, because like, I don't, I don't think, I think 
a lot of people just want to get along, you know, and in the sense of like, or treated with dignity and respect. And so there's a matter of like, I don't know, I don't know what the, I don't know what the best picture would look like and how we can solve what happened under settler colonialism, you know? Uh, I know that it's fucked up now. <laughs> and I know small ways to like improve it, but it's like, I guess I lean towards just listening to them. I mean, it's the least we could do to figure out what a solution is and and help their understanding of what they've gone through to help guide us into making the situation as better as we can, given all that has already, like, happened. You know? I will say, like, connecting this back to a lot of stuff, this is one of the things I wanted to mention earlier but had forgotten, because you were talking about the right wing, like, going on everyone's platform as, like, this right wing... I call it the right-wing circle jerk, but, uh, you know, <laughs> Ben Shapiro goes on Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin goes on Ben Shur Shur Shapiro. They go on uh, Michael Knowles. Like, they all just share around, right? Ezra just recently went on Tucker Carlson's show and got to spew to Tucker Carlson's audience in America that, for example, there's these arsons that are occurring everywhere. Mm. at uh, Catholic churches, okay? And then try to, so I don't know if you followed this story, but there was a town in British Columbia called Lytton, BC. And Lytton, BC has a high indigenous population, but it's also the hottest place in Canada. And when we had the heat wave recently, it was hotter than even any place in America. It was 49.5 degrees Celsius, which is I don't know, like 115 degrees or something like this. It's It, it was Fahrenheit, right? Like, yeah. it was hot. It was friggin' hot. And the place dried out and then caught fire. And basically, I think it, they said 95% of the town just burned to the ground. Just completely gone. It's no longer in existence anymore. And Ezra decided to take to Tucker Carlson to spread the rumor that it was indigenous people lighting churches on fire that caused the town to burn down. Even though, like, there's no evidence that occurred. There's more evidence to suggest that this was the result of the fact that Lytton is where a bunch of trains converge. So again, like resource extraction and the, the resource economy that possibly, even though the government knew there was going to be an extreme fire risk, decided to let the trains keep going, even though trains are a known cause of forest fires uh, because they produce sparks on the rails and, and whatnot. Uh, and yeah, it's like, and that, and then you you think about intentionality too, about like how we treat indigenous people. What happened in Lytton was the uh, the authorities approached the white people of the town first before then going to the indigenous people, and so there was a delayed response to the indigenous people to get out of there before the city burned down to the ground or town. I guess it's not even close to a city, but uh, it's things like that where it's like, yes, there are ongoing prejudices. And yes, a few churches are burning. So he gets to go on Tucker and be like, oh, it's the Christians who are being persecuted, right? The the poor, poor Christians, even though what's happening here. And like, I don't know, it's a complicated thing. I guess my stance it is just to be sort of like morally neutral about it. But like the Catholic Church played a role in also like holding up the, the residential school system, also yeah. the Anglican Church as well, not just to, to blame the Catholics. And so there have been a lot of Catholic church burnings in on reservations. Uh, so these and and part of this is coming from the fact that they appealed both to the Catholic Church and the Pope to 
at least address and apologize for what they did in Canada. And so far, I think the Pope has refused. And a lot of Catholic priests uh, around our country have said some pretty uh, yikesy things, I will just say, <laughs> about the, the treatment of Indigenous people in this country uh, in response to them saying, all we want is like an apology from you, you know? And it's like, even like watching how uh, the systems and structures that are in place refuse to acknowledge any responsibility in the past harms that were conducted. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's all connected. It's, it's one of these things where it's just like, I don't know. It's sad to see that they're using this as a propagandistic tool to, again, uh, promote this notion of uh, Christian Christian oppression when it's like, I don't know. A few churches being burned down as a result of uh, them participating in a genocide, I don't, is like weighing those harms. And Ezra tried to compare it on Tucker Carlson's show to Kristallnacht, oh, which yeah, was, uh, which is just a, a wacky comparison. Wacky and historically ignorant. For those who don't know, Kristallnacht is when German business owners decided to ransack Jewish uh, businesses within Germany. And it basically inspired the Nuremberg laws, which were then put in place by the Nazi party to, so that was when people started wearing the stars of David and stuff like this. Uh, because the reason why the Nazi party started going down that route is because even though they were stoking the, the uh, anti-Semitism, the idea was that you didn't want to push too hard because you would lose the more moderate conservatives. Right. And so it was like, having people just storm Jewish businesses and kill Jewish business people and sh destroying their shop fronts would have scared away the moderates. So the Nuremberg laws wearing of the star of David and starting to ghettoize them was an attempt to like appeal to the more moderates. So you didn't have people just storming the streets, smashing businesses, which is an interesting history, but somehow Kristallnacht <laughs> is like a few churches burning because indigenous people are reacting to an ongoing genocide like to, to compare those two things is i don't know there's no 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 absurd <laughs> bigotedly absurd uh ignorant like it's it's just messed up well it's also messed up just on the grounds that the uh the fact that in crystal knock people were killed too like it wasn't just yeah. they were destroying property they were destroying lives they were beating people they were it it as much as we don't want people burning stuff, we also have to consider the fact that, as far as I know, nobody has perished in these things. And well, that's why they want to talk about Linton, B.C., because two people died in that forest fire exactly. that took out that city. So then Tucker Carlson and Ezra can be like, oh, oh, look, two people died. So this is clearly like the result of these forest fires, you know? Yeah, and so that they can blame the, fo the forest fires on them, uh, yeah. they can say, well, you've just killed these people. It's like crystal knocked. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I really appreciate you coming on. It was a wonderful discussion with you, despite the stream cutting out a little bit uh, in the near the end. Uh, if you guys would like to follow uh, Imperial News, please do. Also, feel free to follow me. Thank you very much, Jody, and thank you so much for coming on. It was really, really nice to see you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.